in a time like this where we did speak, just the whole pastoral team, and then especially Sister Meg and I this afternoon, and felt like we need to acknowledge what's going on and need to just be conscious of it. There's no sense in acting like we're not hurting. There's no sense in acting like this isn't a heavy day for many of us, especially the Tatro family as they grieve, as they figure out what this even means, and that's perfectly acceptable. And we talk about being a family of God and how many of us really believe that, that we are a church family. And so as a church family, we laugh and we celebrate together, and then it's also okay to to grieve and to cry together. And so for the first half tonight, because I'm going to speak and we're going to sing a few songs, and then we'll do uh, the second half with Sister Meg. For my portion, I want to talk for a few minutes tonight about sharing in grief, just sharing in grief. And we're going to look at a few scripture passages, and I will tell you up front, primarily this is going to be a little more pragmatic. I'm only planning to speak for maybe 20, 25 minutes. Some of this from the scriptures, a lot of this just from my own personal experience in life. And I know that in addition to this family that has lost a child, there are others of us here who have lost loved ones. There are members of our congregation who have lost children. And so when something like this happens, it makes it real and it makes it fresh and sometimes it hurts again. And that's okay too. And that is part of life and we want to acknowledge that as well. First passage we want to look at it comes out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I'm going to read everything out of the New Living Translation tonight. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first eight verses says, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace, a well-known passage for many of us why mention that tonight? Just to start with by mentioning there are cycles to life. I wish that life was easier. I wish that it was smoother sailing and that we tended to ride more crests than, than the troughs and that we tended to live more on mountaintops than in valleys. But the, the reality is all of us who are adults, all of us who have lived any length of time know that you have mountains and you have valleys. There are the crests and there are the lows. And we walk through all of it. And the writer of Ecclesiastes acknowledges that in life there are good times and bad times. And there are ups and there are downs. And there are times of celebration and there are times of mourning and times of grief. And my point in sharing that is just to remind us as a church family, because tonight I'm talking to a church family, that it is okay to grieve. It's normal. It's actually healthy. I don't have time to unpack it all tonight, but you could go do a word search just on something as simple as grieve or grief, and you will see it comes up many times in the Bible, and that grief is part of life, 
and that we have different stages, different stages in life. And the second thing I wanted to mention, just kind of setting the stage for a few comments I'm going to make, our pastor shared this at the close this morning of our service, but I think it bears repeating. In Romans 12, 15, it says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Again, a well-known passage, but as he pointed out, look at the very next verse, verse 16, the first half of it, it says, live in harmony with each other. Now, Paul makes a lot of comments in Romans chapter 12, hitting a whole variety of issues, but my point in bringing this up, like our pastor did, was be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Because life has times of joy and celebration, and it also has times of sorrow and times of grief. And together, collectively, we are to live in harmony. And harmony means that we deal with both. Harmony means that we have good times and we have bad times, high times and low times, and that we walk through it together. And it's okay to walk through it together and to pause and acknowledge moments like this and to grieve and to share with our hurt family members. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, actually, if I gave you 12 and 13, I apologize. That's my fault for giving you the wrong passage. I wrote that down wrong. Let me turn in my Bible real quick to it. So that's my fault, sound team. I wrote down the wrong scripture reference. We grieve, but not like others who grieve. A time to look smooth and a time to fail publicly. A time to know your Bible and a time to give the wrong verses. First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. And so now, dear brothers and sisters, I was just off by a verse. We want you to know what will happen to believers who died, so you will not grieve like those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. But while we often use that at a time of death, and we use that as a comfort, and Paul meant that as a comfort there, that we would come back. Please don't miss where he starts making those comments. He says, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died, so you do not grieve like people who have no hope. But built into there is an assumption of what? It's an assumption of grief. Paul acknowledges that. He says, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But the point is we still grieve. We still hurt. We still suffer loss. And we don't know what to do with it. And when we're faced with situations, it's not just like today, but today's a teachable moment. When we're faced with these incredible things that happen, incredible in the sense of, I have no words. For those of you who have lost loved ones, or even for those of you who maybe have not had an immediate family member who has passed, but you've seen loss either with friends or coworkers or extended family neighbors, others, you've, you've reached this point and you cross these bridges. And if you're like most of us, how many have faced that kind of thing and you're thinking, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea what to say. Anybody ever feel like that? 
Okay, so if we acknowledge that, you'll notice it's pretty much the whole room. And my point is that's okay. And that's where I just want to spend a few minutes kind of pragmatically talking tonight about what to do when we face this, when we deal with this kind of loss. Why do we lose words? Why are there no adequate words at a time like this? This would take a couple weeks to fully unpack, but basically a lot of it has to do with the fact that we were not designed to die. You go back and you read our story from the very beginning in Genesis, and God intended for us to live in harmony with each other and for him in a place that he had prepared that Scripture describes as a paradise, an idealistic setting. And then due to selfish choices, due to sinful actions, that paradise and that ideal of what God intended was broken. And as a result of that brokenness, death entered the picture. And this is for another time, but death in itself is a mercy that God allowed to happen. Although it's the cost of sin, God decided that he was not going to make his creation live broken forever. Would you want to live broken forever? And so death, in that sense, is a mercy, and it allows us the chance to be restored back to him in his presence without all of our brokenness. But even in dealing with that brokenness, now we're on a pathway that God did not intend as the ideal for us. And so when we face death, when we face this loss, when we face this incredible separation We're at a loss for words. That's the expression we use. When we face loss, we're at a loss for words because we were never designed to deal with it. We were not intended to have to be forced into this kind of separation. And so we're ill-equipped to handle it. We don't know what to do with it. And many times, there's something, again, we struggle with the words. It's here. You feel it so deeply right in the center, in the very, very core of your being, and yet you don't know how to express it. And that's okay. And that's normal. And that's part of it. So acknowledge that. In dealing with uh, the loss of my mother five years ago, I had a good professor give me some sound advice that I didn't really get at the time, but it made more sense later. And he said, at some point, you just have to learn to lean into it. You can shut down the emotion. You can try to keep control and and not deal with it and suppress it. And there are times when we need to carry on and live with life. But then there are moments when it is perfectly acceptable. In fact, it's even ideal just to, to lean into that pain, just Acknowledge its presence. And even though you may not have the words for it, you accept it. You don't try to push it away. So what do you say? What do you do in a time like this when we're dealing with loss, when we as a family are sharing in grief? How do we respond to this? I think one of the best things that we can do, especially when we don't know what to say, and often that is the case, is to not say. Just not say. Resist. If, if you hear nothing else I say tonight, as we grieve as a church family, and then as we support each other in grief at different times in life, hear this please. Resist the temptation to try and provide an answer. Resist the temptation. If you've not heard that before, maybe no one's ever shared that with you. Resist the temptation to try and provide an answer. 
We want answers, but we don't always get them. And when we are hurting and when our family is hurting, when our friends are hurting, we want to provide answers, but we still don't have them. And sometimes one of the best things we can do is resist the temptation to try and come up with an answer. You've ever been in a situation, whether it's with loss or grief or even a lighter situation, you feel like you, you need to do something. You need to say something. Ever feel stuck like that? And so have you ever, speaking to the adults in the room, put your foot in your mouth, maybe not even with a grief situation, but you're in some situation and it felt a little awkward and you just needed to say something. So you came up with something to say and then later you walked away and you're like, why on earth did I say that? Resist the temptation to need to come up with an answer. In theology, we have this big fancy label, and we call these theodicy questions. And it makes you sound smart, but the irony is there's nothing smart about theodicy. In fact, theodicy makes fools of us all when it comes to theology. What that means, that big fancy word, it's the why questions. Why does God let this happen? It's the where questions. Where is God when this happens? And these are real questions. And God is okay with these questions, by the way. You go to the Psalms, and you will see multiple Psalms. We call them Psalms of Lament, where the psalmist cries out to God and says, Where are you, God? I feel alone right now. I'm hurting right now. Why did you let this happen? And these have been preserved in Scripture for our instruction. God's okay with this. He's fine with the where are you, God? Why did you allow this to happen? And we collectively refer to these where is God? Why did he allow this to happen? Questions. They're called theodicy questions. If you don't remember that word, it's not important. The point is, even trained quote-unquote professionals, people who spend lots of time writing counseling books and grief books and everything else, they wrestle with these questions, and you could walk into your local Christian bookstore, and they probably have a whole bookcase full of different books that deal with this, and they don't all say the same thing. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Do you know why these books don't say the same thing? Because none of us know what we're doing. And we're making it up. I mean, honestly, we're trying to come up with our best answer for the why question. Is that fair, Elder? In 40 years of pastoring. Best thing to do is to be quiet and resist the temptation to come up with an answer. Because, hear me, from the pulpit say, none of us know what we're doing. When we deal with loss and when we deal with heavy grief at times like this, no one has a good answer. It's okay to ask the question. Hear that too. It is perfectly okay to ask the question. God is comfortable with our why questions and where are you God questions. We see multiple examples of that in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. It doesn't bother God. He's a big boy. He can handle it. We're the ones who struggle with the why and the where are you. We don't see the full picture. We don't understand everything that God is doing. And here's another challenge for us. He doesn't owe us an explanation. Sometimes God answers. Sometimes we ask, where are you, God? And he may remind us of his presence. And then we ask, why did you let this happen? And he doesn't answer that question. Sometimes we get an answer, sometimes we don't. But it's okay to ask the question. But on our end, as we struggle to come up with these 
answers, as we struggle with this emotion, as we're dealing with hurt and pain and memory and all this stuff gets intermixed and we don't know what to do with it, resist the temptation to just come up with an answer for the sake of an answer. It'd be better not to say anything. And then I know, I'm speaking from my experience, but then also speaking with many other people who have lost family members. Uh, my mother passed away five years ago of cancer. It was before we moved here. It was while I was in seminary in my master's program living in St. Louis. And I remember when that happened, there were things that people did that were of great comfort to our family. And there are things that people did that I thought that has got to be one of the stupidest things you could have possibly said to someone during a time of hurt. And they just didn't know. In my experience, so if you disagree with me, that's perfectly fine. I am humbly and readily, openly admitting tonight, I'm talking about in my experience, if you're going to say something, the best answer is, I'm so sorry. And notice I left it at that. The I'm sorry answer often is the best one. And the other answer that's probably frustrating, but just as good is, I don't know. I'm so sorry. I don't know. What do we accomplish by doing that? Because I didn't answer a question. I acknowledged the hurt. I acknowledged the grief. I said, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer these questions. So what does that accomplish? It provides for a lack of a better word, the gift of presence. My wife and I were talking about this today. When we as a church family hurt, when we have these cycles, as Ecclesiastes talks about these times of grief, when Paul talks in Thessalonians about the fact that we grieve, but we don't grieve like other people, the fact of being together, that, that gift of presence does more than words convey. It has more value than words convey. So yes, we are undoubtedly dealing with a very real present circumstance at the moment. But beyond this, just as a church family, as we grow together, talking tonight to leaders in our servantship service, as we serve and learn and grow together, when we deal with times of loss, when we deal with times of hurt, the gift of presence, the idea of just simply being together has more value than we often realize. As you have a chance to share with your brothers and sisters, as time allows, as they're interested, sometimes something as simple as walking up to someone, giving them a hug and saying, I'm so sorry, and just spending a moment there, even in silence, just your presence does something. For those of you who have lost people before, you, I see some of you nodding your head, agreeing, and you understand just the presence of family, just the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ brings comfort and help, even if we don't know what to do. Uh, I'm going to try and take control of this again if it'll reload. If not, can you put up my next scripture out of Numbers? I just want to point out something to you, just by way of principle. In Numbers chapter 20, I was thinking about this today. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 29, it says, When the people realized that Aaron had died, all Israel mourned for him. All Israel mourned for him for 30 days. And go to the next scripture. 
Deuteronomy 34, verses 7 and 8. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear and he was as strong as ever. Next verse, look at this. The people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. Notice that phrase, customary period of mourning was over. I'm not trying to make something prescriptive. I'm not saying we mourn for 30 days. Don't miss the point. But there is a principle here that we see that I think in our busy, fast-paced culture at times we miss. They understood the value of just stopping for a moment. And when Aaron, the first high priest, passed, when Moses, his brother, the leader of this nation, passed, they just stopped and acknowledged the death. They mourned and they spent time. And there's value in taking time, as we do today, and it looks different for everyone. But you just pause for a moment and slow down. The world doesn't stop. It keeps going. Life doesn't stop. We have things to do. Things keep going. But allowing space and time for that grief does something. Saying, I don't know. I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. I grieve with you. And then just allowing room for that does something. When we grieve together, we heal together. We grow together. We benefit and find strength from each other. And grief looks different for everyone. Let me say that again. Grief looks different for everyone. So you have to give time and space for it. In my own family, I observed that with my mother's passing, I responded very differently than my siblings did. And there was no right way to respond. Some of it is a reflection of personality, temperament, other things. Sometimes people respond quickly, sometimes slowly. Sometimes it's very emotional. Sometimes it's not as emotional. Sometimes they want lots of people around them. Sometimes they want space for a while. All of these are acceptable. All of these are valid responses. Everyone is going to look different as they grieve. And so we support each other. We love each other. We're there for each other. But we also give time and space. And we allow people to express themselves in different ways. This isn't a scripture. I don't need you to pull it up. But Psalm 139, verse 14, David's talking about how he's fearfully and wonderfully made. Other translations say that I am wonderfully complex. And I've often thought about that. Many times I hear that preach, and it talks about our physical bodies, right? How complex our physiology is, the biological makeup of our body, how, how incredibly intricate it is. But I think David was talking about more than that. We are amazingly complex intellectual, emotional creatures. Half of our species, the female half, lives this way constantly. Males don't get it at all, but they have the ability to hold 20 different emotions at the exact same moment. And the male half struggles to express one emotion at a time. <laughs> and we are fearfully and wonderfully complex creatures. And sometimes we can be high and low at the same time. And we can have happiness and sadness. We can have joy and grief. And it's all intermixed. And sometimes we may cycle through all of that in a matter of five to ten minutes. And if you step back and look at it, you're like, that is a hot mess. What does that even mean? 
And that's just not a male confusion on the other half of the species. Just in general, we look at people and we're like, what is this? And yet, God made us this way. He made us these beautiful, intricate, confusing, at times contradictory creatures who have a whole mix of emotions. And you're not all happy or you're not all sad and you're not all joyous and you're not all grief all at the same time. It's all intermixed and you can't separate it all out. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the way he designed us. We're not a painting with two colors. It's a beautiful, beautiful tapestry. I'm mixing metaphors. We've gone from painting to textile. But it's, it's this beautiful mix of colors and patterns and textures and shapes. And it's all at once. And it's all intermixed. And you can't separate it out. And so you let it be. And there are highs and there are lows. And there's good and there's bad. But the point is that we walk through it together and we put our faith and our trust in God. I'm so sorry. I don't know. But I trust. And I do know that we grieve, but not like those without hope. Because even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when we walk through difficult times, we can look forward and there is a hope and there is a future and we choose to believe. In other words, we have faith. It's an active choice that there is a future for us and there is a God who knows everything we're going through and he has a bigger plan even when we don't see it, even when we don't recognize it. And at some point that we don't know, he'll put it all back together. And whether it happens in this lifetime and he returns and we are caught up to meet him in the air, or whether it comes by way of our own death, at some point we are reunited with him and we are reunited with family and our brothers and sisters who have died with this faith and who have been obedient to this gospel message. And we look forward to that time when we will hear, well done. And so in the highs and in the lows, we walk together. In the good times and the bad times, in the joy and in the grief, we are on this journey together as a family. And as we learn to share in grief, we can also share in joy. And life goes through cycles, and they're unpredictable, but in all of this mixed together, God has given us each other. This is the time when the church family is a gift. I'll publicly acknowledge and say thank you to the small group, um, Newark 2. You've done wonderful. We, as a pastoral team, we're getting updates throughout the day. I know they are already lining up food and doing other things. And a few of you have asked if there's something you want to do for the Tatro family, even if you're not part of that small group, please talk to Sister Leela and she will help coordinate over the next few days what that means and how we help each other. But the church body is a gift. We are a gift to each other and we do not walk alone and we do not celebrate alone and we also don't have to grieve alone. And I know this is a little more somber, and I know it's a little different tonight, but I wanted to take a moment and acknowledge 
what we are all in our own ways processing through and thinking through and dealing with today. And there's value in sharing in grief together. And we are blessed that God has given us not only a hope and a future, but he has also given us each other. And we can do this together. Amen. As the pastoral team and even staff members can attest to you, I send out at times, in all caps, READ, and then there will be some article. What they don't know is I have a backlog of a lot of things that I haven't even sent to them yet. And one of them came back to my mind this evening as I was sitting listening and even throughout today. Uh, They'll 